Hey, look, I feel a little nervous this morning because um, I don't think I've ever publicly admitted this before. But I absolutely love movie trailers. Not just movies, movie trailers. You know those little sneak previews you get when you go to the cinemas and they tell you what movies are coming out? I love them. I love their creativity. I love the way that they're sort of, they're a blend between art and advertising. I love the way that they're so cleverly put together that they're only two and a half minutes. That's the industry regulation. They've got to be less than two and a half minutes. But I love the way they cram so much into those two and a half minutes. I've got some of my favourite movie trailers saved on the computer and I can watch them over and over and over again. I watch movie trailers the way some people listen to music. Now, I'm letting you into this sad little world of mine because I'm hoping that over the last few weeks here at church, I'm hoping that the parts of the Bible that we've been reading together, that has been a bit like watching a movie trailer where we've been getting a sneak preview of something that's coming up, that we've been getting a bit of an appetizer, a bit of a teaser of the wonderful life that God has in store for us, that because of Jesus Christ, we have the glorious hope of an eternal, imperishable life in a new creation in which all the trials that we are presently struggling with, they will all be gone one day. Here's the thing, though, friends. In virtually every movie trailer you ever see, what is the last thing they tell you? What is almost certainly the last thing they put up on the screen for you to read? That's right, coming soon. And friends, in a nutshell, that is the message of this morning's passage. That after a series in which we've been looking at at quite a lot of what the new creation will be like, in this last one, I want us to think about when it will actually get here which takes us to 2 Peter chapter 3, and a passage that tells us four important truths about the when of the new creation. The first, and perhaps the main point of the passage really, is that it will be an inevitable event. Verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as, if, as it has since the beginning of creation. Now look down there at verse 4. That phrase, where is this coming, he promised. The he there, that's a reference to Jesus. That's pretty clear uh, as a follow-up from verse 2. And so the coming he has promised, the coming Jesus has promised, is most likely a reference to the promise that Jesus made that he was going to come back to earth again in the future. Christians often call this Jesus' second coming. The New Testament never calls it that. It simply calls it his coming, his arrival, his appearance. And it's actually sometimes used as an official word. That's why some of your translations, if you've got the NIV, you'll probably notice that's in inverted commas. It's a word that was used to describe an official visit of the emperor that when the emperor came to town in all his glory and all his massive entourage and and the trumpets were blasting, that visitation was called his appearance, his coming. And you see, Jesus promised that one day he was going to do that. One day he would return. He would appear again and this time it would be in all his majesty and all his power, just like the emperor of the day, only much more so he was coming to visit. 
Many of Jesus' parables are actually about this. But back to 2 Peter 2, uh, sorry, 2 Peter 3, because all this has relevance to us because what is clear from verse 13, a bit later on, is that this future appearing of Jesus, it's going to be all linked with the future appearing of the new creation. That when King Jesus returns, that will be the definitive moment in history. The window of opportunity to get forgiveness from God will then be over. God's final judgment will fall and this present creation will vanish in a roar and a new creation will replace it. In a nutshell, that is what the New Testament repeatedly affirms. But hey, back here we're getting way ahead of ourselves in verse 3 because we haven't even got past the issue of whether or not this is going to happen in the first place. Because some people are clearly of the opinion that it's not going to happen. Where is this coming, he promised. There are people, you see, who reckons it's a silly idea. Life's been going on for years since Jesus' death and resurrection. He's not coming back. Last year, a survey was taken by Associated Press and they discovered that one in four Americans thought that Jesus is coming back. I found that a very high statistic. I'm not sure one in four Americans live like they believe it, but anyway, that's what they said. One in four Americans said that they reckoned Jesus was coming back. Here is what one Canadian journalist said about that. Quote, I know I run the risk of offending millions of people with what I'm about to say. I don't care. The fact that one in four Americans, a full 25%, believe that Jesus Christ will return to earth in the second coming with trumpets and angels singing, it's absurd. It borders on the ridiculous. Who are these one in four persons? Who are you? How can you be so completely and utterly irrational? No wonder that an idiot like George Bush is the president of the most powerful nation of the earth when a quarter of your population is certifiably insane. That journalist would very happily align himself with the scoffers of verse 3. Where is this coming, he promised. And in all honesty, is there a a bit of a part of you that resonates with that? Jesus coming back? That's silly. Peter actually reckons it's a sure thing, verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word... The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Whenever I go out to a meeting, I always tell Sue when I'll be back, you know, give her a certain time, an estimate of when I'll be back home. I have literally been out by days. The meeting runs late, the car breaks down, the flight gets delayed, the flight gets cancelled. All sorts of things are on the cards for, for us in those sorts of things because we can't control stuff. Peter's point in verse 5 there is that that sort of thing doesn't happen with God because there is no stuff that he can't control. So powerful is God, he makes the point, that he formed the heavens and the earth by just speaking the word. So nothing's going to stop God keeping his promises about the future because God himself brings the future into being. God has promised that Jesus will return again. He will. Now, if you think about it, it's a truth that is taking us full circle back to our very first talk in the series. The hope of Israel, 
that the future hope of God's people is grounded in the very character of God. The fact that God is good, the fact that he's faithful, the fact that he's powerful, those very simple truths give us a profound assurance about the fact that what God says is going to happen in the future will happen. Indeed, to add further weight to the argument, in verse 6, Peter is pointing out there that God has already judged the world once before with water. He's talking about the time of Noah and the flood. And so in the case of judging the world, God's actually got a track record of doing it already. So what on earth makes you think that he's not going to do it again? Friends, it's going to happen, Peter's saying. Jesus will return. Friends, a new creation is going to be ushered in. Judgment will be handed down. It is the very character and track record of God that makes it inevitable. Mind you, the fact that it's inevitable will not stop it from also being sudden, unexpected. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. A few years back when I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I was not expecting to see an intruder on their hands and knees crawling across our bedroom floor. Friends of ours did not wake up one morning expecting to have found their car stolen from their driveway. Our neighbours didn't come home one afternoon expecting that all their outdoor furniture was going to have disappeared from their backyard. That's not the way it works with thieves, is it? It's always unexpected. You never go out to the car park expecting your car not to be there. It's always surprising, always sudden. So it will be with the coming of Jesus and the ushering in of the new creation. It's actually one of the few things, did you know, that Jesus said that he didn't even know. In the mystery of Jesus becoming a man, it's one of the things that Jesus humbly, submissively gave up his knowledge of. God the Father alone has the knowledge of when this is going to happen. And really, I guess it's at this point that the New Testament is coming closest to telling us the when of the coming of the new creation. That if the Bible was a movie trailer, then the end slide would not actually give us a specific date. It would simply say, coming soon. Or perhaps more accurately, coming anytime. Because that's what the New Testament stresses time and time again. It could happen anytime. Now, I'm conscious that that's not what is taught in lots of Christian circles. Some Christian traditions have very elaborate ideas of all these things that are going to happen before Jesus returns. That there'll be, you know, this big bad antichrist who's going to pop up at some time. There's going to be a one world government and there's going to be stuff like a rapture or or a tribulation or a thousand year reign of Jesus on the world. And I know a lot of people, and if you're here and you haven't heard of any of that, blessed are you. Because I actually think that those sorts of ideas owe themselves more to people's imagination than what a sober reading of the Bible says. Because the New Testament stresses time and time again, this could happen, this could happen before I finish this talk. Because what you find throughout the, Old Te- the New Testament, the writers are urging their readers back then to be ready for it. How much more us? For example, to the Thessalonian church, the Apostle Paul says also that it's all going to happen like a thief in the night. And therefore he says, be alert, be ready, be prepared, be primed, be waiting for it. 
And if I could just have a brief aside at this point, Paul also says to the Thessalonians, don't worry about those Christians who have already died. When the, new te- when the new creation arrives, they will not miss out on it. Now, I say that because I am aware that there's been a bit of a discussion amongst people throughout this series that, that if our ultimate hope is not to be in heaven, but our ultimate hope is actually to be in, a new, in the new creation, what about all those Christians who have already died but the new creation isn't already here yet? Where are they now? Well, in some ways, the New Testament doesn't definitively say In some places it suggests that Christians who have died now are somehow with Jesus waiting for the new creation and other verses suggest that they might sort of of be asleep now and that when the new creation comes, they'll wake up. I think the New Testament is actually a little ambiguous about that and that's because the New Testament's focus is not so much on our brothers and sisters who have died but on those of us who are still alive because the New Testament wants us to be ready for the inevitable, sudden appearing of Jesus and the new creation. Especially so because this will be an inescapable event. Verse 10 again. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? I don't know whether you noticed it in the news earlier this month, but the president of Kiribati has been in Australia. Kiribati is a very small uh, Pacific island nation. And the president was here earlier this month to try and get some help for his people because in about 50 years, due to rising ocean levels, his country wasn't going to exist anymore. He said in an interview, to plan for the day when you no longer have a country is indeed painful but I think we have to do that. Friends, the Apostle Peter would say that we need to plan for the day when none of us will have a country. We need to plan for the day when it will all have disappeared in a roar. Because did you notice the emphasis in those verses 10 and 11 of just this all-compassing nature of what is being described? The heavens, the elements, the earth, and just in case you missed it, and everything in it will be laid bare, since everything will be destroyed in this way. Friends, when Jesus comes back to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, you're not going to have to worry about whether you'll miss it or not. No one is going to miss this. This is a massive cosmic scale event which will affect everyone you know and during which everything you know will vanish in a roar. It's a simple point, but we... We need to be straight about this. You do not know a single person who will be unaffected by this. Please do not be sitting there this morning thinking that this is somehow interesting but it's got nothing to do with with you. It's got everything to do with you. Because everything and every single one of us is going to be caught up in this. There will come a day when Jesus will be back And he will be back to bring in final judgment, usher in a new creation, and you and you alone will have to stand before him. No exceptions. And in that single definitive moment in history, it will be for you either inexpressible joy or undescribable terror. 
which leads to the fourth point. This is a compelling event. And by that I mean if ever there was an event that compels us to be ready for it, it's this one. Verse 11. Since therefore, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Now, friends, we do need to be a little clearer at this point. Peter is not urging his readers to be holy and godly and spotless and blameless because that is what will earn them a place in the new creation. Got to be clear about that. Our place in this new creation has been reserved for us by all that Jesus did on the cross. We thought about that a couple of weeks ago, remember? The perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice for us. And so when Peter is urging them here, urging us here to make every effort to be godly, it's not in order to earn a place in the new creation. It's so that we might never fall away from Jesus. It's so that we might never turn our back or drift away from Jesus because he is the one we must rely on to grant us a place in this new creation. Now, this is something that Peter has already spelled out already in the letter. Back in chapter 1, the passage that Mao read for us earlier, have a look at the verses again from verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly love the brotherly, sorry, brotherly kindness and the brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? Make every effort to do all these things so that you might not fall, so that you might stick with Jesus, so that you might receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. Now, does that sound like you? All those things that are being listed, are you making every effort to stick with Jesus? The Apostle Peter would say, you are crazy if you are not. Why on earth would you not be making every effort to not fall? Why on earth would you not be making every effort to stay loyal to Jesus so as to receive a rich welcome into his eternal kingdom? Because it's coming. It's inevitable. It'll be sudden. It'll be inescapable. And therefore, let me suggest that as people of hope, we also ought to be doing whatever it takes to help those we know to receive that rich welcome as well. So you come back with me to chapter 3 and verse 8, an important verse that we haven't considered yet of our reading, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. It is now a bit over 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection. And to some of us, that can seem a long time. 
It's not a long time to God. In the scheme of eternity, that is the blink of an eye. And so God is not slow in sending Jesus back. God is not slow in ushering in this new creation. Time, time does not matter much to God. People matter to God. And he is merciful. And he is holding off Jesus' appearing. And he is holding off the appearing of the new creation so that people might have the chance to repent and be ready for it. It's not like that game of hide and seek where the person counts as fast as they can so as to be able to catch as many people as they can before they have a chance to hide. God is not interested in catching out as many people as possible. He's interested in saving as many people as possible. So friends, can you think about that? If the very reason that God is delaying things is in order for people to be saved... What do you think he might want us to be doing during this delayed period? Do you think he'd actually be wanting us to tell people about Jesus? It's the whole reason Jesus hasn't come back yet. Back in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted in America. Some of you might remember that. It was one of the most devastating volcanic eruptions uh, in, in history. The mountain exploded with a force of 500 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. The biggest landslide in human history rushed down the mountain at 250 kilometres an hour. Aeroplanes over 48 kilometres away were pelted with rocks. The town of Yakima, 130 kilometres away, was blanketed with ash and cut off from the world for three days. 57 people were killed, and some of those killed were over 30 kilometres from the volcano. Now, amazingly, the mountain had been rumbling for months prior to this, but no one paid any attention. Even when the northern side of the mountain started to bulge out quite conspicuously, no one in a position of responsibility thought there was any danger. So tourists and news crews and geologists, no one was evacuated. That town of Yakima, the one that got covered with ash and blocked off, it had no volcano emergency procedures in place whatsoever. There was one lone voice, a bloke named Jack Hyde. He was a geology professor at a nearby community college. He was sort of part of the official geological team working on the mountain. But his warnings attracted very little notice. He was actually ridiculed by a lot of people as just being an alarmist. Just keep quiet. Let us get on with our lives. Here's the thing. He did the right thing though, didn't he? Even though Jack Hyde was ignored by most people, which proved disastrous, he did the right thing, didn't he? Even if he was poked fun of, he did the right thing, didn't he? You can't sit on something that serious and not say something about it. Can you? Are you? Friends, Jesus is coming back. The new heavens and the new earth, they're on their way. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. It will be sudden. Surely, 
we are compelled to do something about that. Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you are not slow in keeping your promises, but that you are patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Father, thank you that in your good timing, you have enabled us to hear and respond to Jesus through your word and spirit. Thank you for calling us and saving us. But Father, we pray that we would be genuine people of hope, in that we are so convicted of your son's return and the ushering in of the new creation that we will be compelled to tell people about it. Father, give us genuine love, genuine sensitivity to let people know of the things that you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray that perhaps even this week, if it be your will that Jesus hasn't returned yet, that even this week, we'd have a chance to talk to some people about Jesus, please. Amen.